It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio.
And I have definitely missed you guys. You know, where have you been? What have you been up to? And I guess that question should or could be posed to me. You know, we've been working with this People of Color Beyond Faith project. You can find our videos on YouTube. You know, again, that's People of Color Beyond Faith. Um, you can find us on Google+, Facebook, on Twitter, and we do a monthly webcast. And we started in October, and, you know, we've been doing it ever since. You know, a couple of technical difficulties here and there, but nothing, you know, too bad, nothing to complain about. And we actually had a online digital conference in February. For those that weren't familiar or didn't get a chance to view it live, the archives are on the YouTube page, and please go out there and take a look and enjoy yourselves. We do these videos as well as these podcasts for you guys. You know, we want to make sure that you have information and be able to put, you know, history in the proper context to understand what's happening in our community and why certain things the way that they are Then you know, how we're going to move forward or how we're trying to move forward, but we need you. We definitely need you. But, yeah, check out the People of Color Beyond Faith. Our March webcast will take place on Sunday, March 30th. Again, Sunday, March 30th. And yesterday was International Women's Day. So I know I posted about that. And, you know, happy International Women's Day to all the women out there. And that's why we're doing this show today, Black Women of the Social Justice Movement, because, you know, people, society tend to um, basically factor black people out of, you know, history, and especially some of our own history, which, you know, to me is absolutely amazing. But I wanted to feature and talk about black women of the social justice movement. I just think it's important that, you know, and understand the accomplishments of people like Sojourner Truth and Angela Davis and Florence Kennedy and, you know, Shirley Chisholm, um, Elaine Brown, Barbara Jordan, Daisy Bates, Bates, and even our very own Sakibu Hutchinson. You know, you need to know who these people are and, you know, their accomplishments and, you know, where we're going and how a lot of the, you know, programs and a lot of the advancements that you see in our communities is based on the accomplishments of these women plus other women. You know, I don't have time to talk about everyone, but, you know, I just wanted to bring up a few so, you know, going back to the original announcement, um, People of Color Beyond Faith, our next webcast is March 30th, and we encourage you definitely to be a part of that. You know, the invite should be going up in the next couple of days, and we will have, you know, um, a guest moderator, Antika, from Brickbat Review and Morningside Park Newspaper. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a really, really good show, and, you know, we're looking forward to that. Next week on Blog Talk Radio, on our podcast here, Black Freethinkers, we will be featuring women again because this is March, so we're going to be featuring, you know, um, women of color in different scenarios. So next week's show should be going up in the next couple of days as well. So, you know, just wanted to kind of stay within the theme of the month and, you know, give honor and recognition to women that have been, you know, 
we'll just say women that have not been recognized to the extent that they really should have been, and we want to do that. And so it's been a lot going on. For those that have not seen the flyer that's been released, October 11th and 12th of this year, again, October 11th and 12th of 2014, People of Color Beyond Faith will be holding our first annual conference, and this will be taking place in Los Angeles, California, and the name of the conference is Moving Social Justice. Okay, again, it's Moving Social Justice Conference, and we invite you to come out. This is an actual physical conference, and we have some wonderful people on the lineup. Of course, we have um, Dr. Sakiva Hutchison. We have Dr. Anthony Penn. He'll be there. Mercedes Griffin Forbes of the Mercedes Parra Foundation, and I was going to call her Mercedes Parra. I had to correct myself, but that's the name of her foundation, Mercedes Parra Foundation. She'll be there. We'll have Meredith Moise from Mission Heart Ministries from Baltimore, Maryland. She'll be there. Raina Rhodes, of course, um, will be there. Donald Wright will be there, of course, and... Let me see. So we have Sakivu, Meredith, Mercedes. I don't have the flyer in front of me, so forgive me um, if I forget somebody's name. But, you know, we're going to have a wonderful time. It's going to be a two-day event. It's taking place at CFI Los Angeles, and that information has been released. And there's more information coming up for that. You know, this week there will be some um, announcements, some major announcements from PLCBF. And so look forward to that um, by the middle of the week here. And, you know, we're just, you know, moving all of this forward. We're moving social justice forward. We're getting out there in the community. And, you know, there are some people out there that mock, you know, uh, using social media as a means to move social justice forward, as a means to, you know, communicate with people. But, you know, these are the same people that do not necessarily understand the importance of social media. And, you know, we talked about that during our weekend um, conference, the digital conference that we had. And so I encourage you to go out there and take a look at that one hour YouTube webcast, and that was moderated by Danielle Monique Whitelow. So, you know, wonderful, wonderful webcast, and we talked about the importance of social media and social justice and how it's all tied in together. So I would encourage you guys to go back and take a look at that. But, yes, you know, the main reason why we're doing the podcast and the webcast is so that we can reach out to you and so that you will have the archives so that you can enjoy them at your own leisure. Because we understand that there are some people who are not out for whatever reason. We understand that there are some people who cannot make it to these conferences for whatever reason. So we want you to enjoy the full experience so that you can see what some of these panels entail, what we talk about um, to get you familiar with different people in the community so that you know that you're not alone out here, that there are people who think like you, who went through the same experiences that have, you know, some of the same opinions because, again, we're not a monolith. You have different people with different 
opinions, different agendas, different goals, and we understand that. And it takes all of us in order to move forward and to get the word out there. And so for those, you know, who aren't able to make it out, for those who are not necessarily out of the closet, we understand this. You know, other people out there may not understand it because you do have some people in this community that try to force people out of the closet, and I think that's wrong personally. I have a problem with that. And, you know, just like it took us time to understand what, you know, what the transition was about as far as our critiquing religion, our having doubts about religion, our, you know, questioning, you know, religion and, you know, other things, you know, it's not only just religion, it's also public policy, it's also, you know, um, you know, history, all of those things. You know, that is why we have this show, so we can put things in the proper context and perspective, and we leave it out there in the archives so that people can enjoy it. As a matter of fact, I received a beautiful letter this week from a young man who, you know, listens to the show, that listens to the podcast, and we would, you know, um, encourage him to go and, you know, Look at the webcast as well so you'll get familiar with who we are and, you know, see what we're doing and how we're progressing. But, yeah, this is for everybody. This is for everybody, but especially those that have been marginalized and ignored. And a lot of that has been taking place in this community, whether, you know, people want to admit it or not. You know, there is a lot of talk about diversity in this community. And that's exactly what it is. It's talk. It's a lot of rhetoric. I'm not seeing a lot of action. And the little action that we do see, there is no follow-up on. So, again, that's the purpose behind primarily people of color beyond faith because, you know, we want to incorporate everyone. We definitely want diversity. You know, we're going to have an extremely diverse panel for um this March webcast, and next month in April, we want a very diverse panel. You know, we've reached out to the Latino community. We've reached out to the Asian community. We've reached out to the Pacific Islanders, just, you know, a number of different people, and we encourage you to contact us. We want you to be a part of this. That's why it says of color. You know, we reach out to the indigenous community. You know, this is for everyone. So, you know, and not only just non-believers, we also encourage believers. As you could tell, you know, when I was talking about the conference in October, we were having a minister. And she was part of the digital conference that we had, the online conference, and her name is Meredith Moise, and she is absolutely wonderful. You know, we were so impressed with her that we invited her to the conference. And so, you know, we encourage you guys. You know, we don't attack believers. We don't believe in doing that. You know, we definitely look forward to interfaith. We do look forward to working with, you know, the believing community because there's a lot more that we have in common. And we can get a lot more accomplished working together. Now, you know, we're not out there proselytizing, and we don't allow them to proselytize, and that's understood. You know, we're just trying to talk about what's happening in the community, what's happening, you know, even in our personal lives, you know, so that you all can see 
you know, we're all the same. You know, we're just everyday common people, and we have some of the same issues, you know, that everyone else has. So, you know, we want to show that commonality, show that common thread, and basically let you know that you're not alone out here. And, again, you know, we encourage you guys to come out to the physical conference. We are going to have a blast. Needless to say, I will be there. And, you know, it's a lot of things that we're pushing forward. And you'll find out more about that this week because we're, you know, we're going to be pushing some national um, collaborations. And so, you know, we encourage you guys to get involved. And, you know, we're just excited, you know, because, some of the programs and projects that we're going to be pushing, you know, later on this year, um, this is going to entail, you know, um, you know, at least five cities across the United States. So, you know, we're just excited about what we're doing. You know, we're going out into the communities and, you know, we're, you know, coming to you. We're coming to you, and, and that's what matters. And it does not matter if you're a believer or a non-believer. We want you to know, and we want you to understand that. So, again, that's People of Color Beyond Faith. Another major announcement will be happening in April. So we look forward to that, and I'm just excited. You know, 2014 has been an exciting year. So it's 2013, and the conference that we're having October 11th and 12th, I keep reminding here, will be the culmination of our first year. So on our first year anniversary, we'll be having our conference. And so, you know, again, this is for you guys. This is for you. You know, many of us have already met each other in some respect, and it's a lot of admiration for the different people in this community. We have a lot of admiration and respect for each other, but most importantly, we have admiration and respect for you because we know how difficult this is. We know that this is not easy. Being out is not easy. And trust me, we know we get the hate mail. You know, we get it from people that's not a part of the community. We also get it from people that are within the community. And, you know, as I stated on the first show of this year, um, which was the white nationalist, black nationalist, atheist front show, if you didn't get a chance to hear that, go back and listen to it. Um, A lot of information there. But one thing that I want to stress to everyone is just because a person calls themselves an atheist, that does not liberate them from being a racist. It does not liberate them from being a sexist. It does not liberate them from being a homophobe. It does not liberate them from being a number of things. So, you know, we just want you to understand that because there are some people in this community that want you to believe that because now they're an atheist that they are no longer those things over there. They're no longer a sexist, homophobe, a misogynist, um, a racist, or what have you. And that is not true. And I did a comparative analysis, you know, on that particular show, and I was talking about how, oh, there are many people in the atheist community that are incorporating a lot of that religiosity mindset. Because when you hear some Christians talking, they say, well, I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been washed by the blood of Jesus. And all of those things I used to be in the past, I am no longer those things. 
you know, because when I got saved, sanctified, it filled with the Holy Ghost or what have you, or when they were baptized, you know, those things were washed away. I say you went down a dry devil and you came up a wet one. How about that? So nothing really changed. So, you know, the same thing, you know, in this community. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Um, you know, Mark Barnhill um, tweeted out something yesterday, and, you know, he was talking about, you know, a homily. And he was talking about how there are some atheists at the CPAC, which for those of you who aren't familiar with CPAC is basically um, the conservative or Republican, you know, the political action committee conference convention that they have every year. And so we had a number of atheists that attended, you know, CPAC this year. And the interesting thing about it is they were mocking CPAC for nobody showing up to their diversity party or outreach um, speech that they had. Nobody showed up. And so the atheists were mocking them on that particular um, fact. And, you know, Mark Barnhill, he said, well, the atheists shouldn't, you know, laugh and point fingers because the same thing is happening on this side of the equation. And that is absolutely correct. We're having the same issue on this side. So, you know, again, many of them claim diversity. They claim that, you know, they're trying to reach out to the community. But that is not necessarily the truth. Um, There are some. You know, there are some organizations that are reaching out, and for those, I do applaud. But the other ones, you know, is basically a bunch of rhetoric, and they will parade a few people in front of you to make it seem as though they are for diversity. But don't believe the hype. Trust me, it's not what it seems. But anyway, moving on, moving on. So today we're talking about black women of the social justice movement. But before we get into that, I wanted to bring up something that happened this week with the United States Senate. Now, you know, we're always talking about how we want you guys to be politically engaged and understand how public policies are put together, how they're implemented, and understand how the government works. Well, this week the Senate rejected an appointment that um, Obama tried to make to a top civil rights post. And basically um, they wanted him to head the you know, Justice Department Civil Rights Division, but his nomination was blocked you know, um, (laughs) during the confirmation hearing Wednesday. And basically, you know, and there were several Democrats, you know, that joined with the Republicans in voting against, you know, Debo. And it's, it's just interesting. And the reason why is because of his participation in appeal, filing an appeal on behalf of Mamiya Abu-Jamal. Now, this is the thing. This gentleman is a lawyer. And he did his job, and he did it well. And he was blocked because of the person he defended. I don't know. You know, know, um, know, Chief Justice Roberts defended someone that killed, you know, multiple people, yet he's the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But this person defended someone that was on death row. 
and got that moved from a death sentence to life in prison. And he's being held accountable for that. You know, he took that case all the way to the Supreme Court twice, and yet he was voted down. And so, you know, there's been some talk as to whether, you know, um, it was because of racism and it's just it's really interesting, um, you know, how all of this came about. But, you know, I definitely feel for that gentleman and definitely wish him the best because he should not have been blocked because of who he defended. If that's the case, then, you know, there are many people that never should have been appointed to any, you know, um, positions. And, you know, it's a travesty within itself, but these things happen. And, you know, again, this ties into something that we've been talking about. He would have been wonderful in that position because look at what's happening across this country. You know, in some states, you know, they're they're stopping the Saturday, you know, voting. And many people who work throughout the week can only make it to the polling place on Saturday. There are some people that can only make it in the evening, and they're, you know, trying to stop that. They're making it difficult with the voter ID laws, making it more difficult, saying fraud. And, you know, there have only been, you know, single-digit number of cases of fraud, and it was primarily by people with the Republican Party. So they want fewer people voting, you know, um, you know, um, Secretary Holder basically is trying to implement, you know, um, or trying to restore voting rights for, you know, people who were convicted of felonies that served their sentences so that they can vote again. And, you know, again, the strategy is to disenfranchise minority and poor voters. And it's not just minority and poor voters, it's students as well, and it's, you know, senior citizens. So, you know, we want you to understand what's happening and go out and do some research on your own because this is being done on purpose. So, again, go out there, understand what's happening around you, understand why certain things are being done. It's extremely important that, you know, you know what's happening. And, you know, um, <laughs> you know another issue in the news, um, basically, Marshall Eddie Conway, who was a former member of the Black Panthers, was released from prison this past Tuesday. And he was in jail for over 40 years, you know, and convicted of killing, you know, a police officer and, you know, the history of the Black Panthers. But, you know, the only reason why I'm talking about this is because, you know, what's happening with Malia Abu-Jamal and that appointment. And I just thought it was important that we recognize that Mr. Conway was released from prison as well. And so, again, former member of the Black Panthers Party, and, you know, that gives me a nice segue because the first person I'm going to talk about today is Elaine Brown. But before I get into that, you know, I want to tell you all some of the accomplishments, actually, of the Black Panther Party. And the most famous and successful program of theirs was the Free Breakfast Program. And it was so successful that it was implemented across the country at all schools. As a matter of fact, um, Michelle Obama, um, basically their um, 
extending a trial program that they had to give free breakfast and lunch to all children so that the children that have been getting reduced in free lunch, you know, they won't be stigmatized. And you all have heard the stories about how if the parents' accounts are behind, how some of the school administrators went around and took the lunch trays of some of those children and just totally embarrassed those children. You see, you know, campaigns of young people going out here and raising money so that, you know, other children can afford to eat lunch. And so, you know, they're extending this free breakfast and lunch program for all children, you know, regardless of, you know, income, you know, constraints. And so I just think that's wonderful that Michelle Obama is pushing that. But anyway, the free breakfast program was brought about by the Black Panther Party because they stated that, you know, children were going to school hungry. Of course, they can't learn if they're hungry. And that's extremely important. I need for you all to understand, you know, there are a lot of programs, a lot of ideas that came out of the black community that we don't necessarily get, you know, credit for. And so I just think it's important that, you guys know what's happening and understand, you know, the contributions that we made. And that program actually first was started out of a church in Oakland, California. So that's a little bit of the history on that. They gave away free clothing. They had classes on politics. They had classes on economics. They had free medical clinics. They gave lessons on self-defense and first aid. Um, They made um, transportation services available to upstate prisons for family members of inmates. Um, They had an emergency response ambulance program. They had drug and alcohol rehab, and they had testing for sickle cell disease. And so, you know, there are a number of things. Um, And we definitely want you all to go out and, you know, research. Research, you know, what the accomplishments have been in our community. You know, it's important for you to understand that. And um, basically, you know, that's pretty much all, you know, I have about the Black Panther Party for right now. I've posted, you know, a number of different things over the past couple of years, and I can just, you know, advise you to go back and look in the archives of the Tumblr page, the you know, Twitter page as well as the Facebook page. But going on to Elaine Brown, I think it's important that we start talking about, you know, some of these great women that, you know, a lot of people, you know, aren't familiar with. And I think, you know, that's a shame. But, you know, again, a lot of us have been factored out and whitewashed out of history. So, you know, from 1974 to 1977, Elaine Brown was the chairman of the Black Panther Party. She is the only woman to have ever held that position. And as a Panther, she ran twice for a position of city council of Oakland, Oakland, California. And since then, she's been active in prison, in education, reform, and juvenile justice. And, you know, she was born in North Philadelphia in 1943. If you all aren't familiar with that, she studied ballet and classical piano. And, you know, it's it's just, you know, interesting, you know, the history of, you know, these wonderful people. She went to Temple University and, uh, you know, basically she worked at, you know, a nightclub in Los Angeles. She left Philadelphia and went there and she basically, um, Kennedy, who helped her form her early political career. 
her education. And, you know, she began giving piano lessons and lots, you know, housing projects to the children there and some adults, but primarily children. But, you know, it's just, you know, interesting, this history. We want you to go back and to, you know, read, do some research and find out um, about this. And, you know, she basically um, started with the Black Panthers, you know, right around 1968. And, you know, she started, well, she was a member of the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party. And, you know, again, you know, they established a free breakfast for children program. And, you know, there are a lot of different programs that have been started, you know, in these communities. There is a retired teacher in Los Angeles that took her retirement money and started a digital bus. She bought an old school bus, had it renovated, and she goes to economically, you know, disadvantaged neighborhoods so that the children and and people in the community, not just the children, some of the adults, will have access to the Internet, you know, access to, you know, the World Wide Web, if you will. So, you know, there are a lot of people in this community that, you know, I would encourage you guys to get familiar with because there are a lot of accomplishments. But anyway, getting back to, you know, Elaine Brown here, that was just an aside. Um, She ran for Oakland City Council in 1973, and that was at the same time that Bobby Still ran for mayor. You know, you know, neither one of them were elected. They didn't win, but they had solid support, you know, and the black population in Oakland, California, you know, they galvanized behind these people. And it expanded what the Black Panther Party was doing. And, you know, I want you guys to go out there and do some research on the Black Panther Party and how I want you to know that, Blacks were for, they were pro-gun, pro-gun rights. And I just want you to research Black Panther Party, pro-gun rights, excuse me, and Sacramento legislature and find out what happened there and why some of the laws that have been implemented over the years, the reason why they've been implemented. Because, you know, there are plenty of blacks that are pro-gun then and pro-gun now. You know, there were, you know, different points in time and even now in which we have to defend ourselves. And so just go back and, you know, read the history, go back and listen to some of the shows that I did about mob action, you know, domestic terrorism, and you'll understand why many of us are pro-gun and why we feel as though we have to protect ourselves, our property, and our families. But anyway, you know, just going on, she, you know, waged a second campaign in 1975 for city council. And this time she received the endorsement of most of the Democratic leaders in, you know, locally. And, you know, the United Farm Workers endorsed her, the Teamsters Union. And so, you know, it just grew bigger and better. And, you know, she didn't win the second time, but she won 44% of the vote. Now, that is quite an accomplishment. And, you know, again, while I have my issues with, you know, President Obama's administration and some of his policies, the same thing happened with the first election and the re-election of President Obama. It galvanized communities of color to go out and vote. But what we want you and need for you to understand is that all politics basically are local. 
So you need to vote on the local level. You need to know who your mayor is. You need to know who your state legislators are. You need to know who your you know, um, federal reps and senators are. And you also need to vote on the off years. And what I mean by that, we have an election coming up in 2014. This is what happened in 2010 and how the Democrats lost control, you know, of the um, both sides of Congress. And so it's important, you know, get registered to vote everybody. Get registered to vote, you know, go vote in the 2014 election. You know, even though it's not a presidential election, you have to remember we need to get out and vote. But I'm telling you that because, you know, she won 44% of the vote. They galvanize, you know, the communities of color to come out and vote. And, you know, our votes do matter. They do matter. Even though there are some people out there that do not believe that they do, they, they really do. And, again, local because, you know, and I'm just kind of tying this in, and you all, those of who are, those of you who are familiar with the show, you're used to this. You, you should be used to it. But basically, you know, you have a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans talking about states' rights. And I've talked about this on a number of different occasions. There are laws that are passed on the federal level, and then control of those programs as well as the money behind those programs are given to the state to administer, okay? And when the state administers these programs, the discretion is up to the administrators of the program. And this is how a lot of people of color are discriminated against. This is how many of them are left out of certain programs. This is how a lot of people of color were not able to collect unemployment. They weren't able to get Social Security. You know, a number of different programs out there, you know, welfare, you know, all of that, because it was up to the discretion of state administrators. And this is how, you know, they're able to discriminate. So when you hear them yelling about states' rights, this is why and this is how. Look at what's happening over in Texas in particular with, you know, what's happening with the, you know, reproductive rights, what's happening with the abortion clinics and the new laws that are being implemented and also with the voter rights. And, again, for those that aren't familiar, last year the Supreme Court, you know, knocked down, you know, different parts of the Voting Rights Act, and immediately you had states like North Carolina and Texas and, you know, a lot of these red states going in to change voter laws. So we need for you to be familiar and to understand what's happening. But, you know, anyway, going back on with um, Elaine Brown here, you know, um, she left the Black Panther Party in Oakland in 1977 because basically there were some issues with, you know, hostility towards the women in the female leadership in that, you know, um, in the Black Panther Party. You know, there were a lot of sexism issues and in, in, in misogyny in the Black Panther Party. And so, you know, go back and do your research on that. But she authored a couple of books. She authored A Taste of Power and The Condemnation of Little B. And she's writing a biography on Mumia Abu-Jamal. Oh, I'm sorry, Jamil Alameen. My apologies there. Jamil Alameen, which is H. Rap Brown. So 
you know, go back and do some research on her. She has, you know, an extensive history. You know, I didn't know this. This is something that I found out. She recorded two albums, and I didn't know that. One with Horace Tapscott and uh, Pan-African People's Orchestra, and then another one called Seize the Time. So that was new to me. I had no idea about that. But apparently she moved to Atlanta in 1996 and established Build the Flowers, which is a nonprofit organization to build model education centers for impoverished children. And, you know, she also co-founded a couple of other programs, um, Mothers Advocating Juvenile Justice and the National Alliance of Radical Prison Reform. So, you know, again, excuse me, you know, go back out and do some research. In 2007, she announced her candidacy for the Green Party nomination for President of the United States. So, you know, it's a lot more about her, but, you know, I just wanted to kind of give you all a little information about who she is, what she accomplished, what she was trying to accomplish, and what we were able to, you know, accomplish and, you know, in our community, and someone in the chat room said conservatives expect you to stay home on Election Day, and when you don't vote, they win. And that is absolutely correct. And, you know, going back to something that I said earlier today when I was talking about the CPAC and some of the atheists that went out there, you know, I need for you to understand and to know that there is a strong libertarian streak in the atheist community, strong libertarian, you know. And what I need for you all to know and to understand is that is one of the reasons why you don't see many of these people advocating for social justice or advocating for community activism because they don't believe in it. So I just need for you all to understand and to know what you're following, what you're supporting, what you're out here, you know, advocating for, but not necessarily understanding or fully comprehending what you're advocating for. Look up libertarianism. Look it up and understand it. Now, there are some who are true libertarians. There are some out there that understand perfectly well what it means and what they stand for. And I wish you well. You know, I'm not trying to change anybody's mind or anything like that. I just want you to be aware, to be aware. So there's a reason why there are certain people in this community that are not for social justice. There are certain people in this community who just literally don't give a damn about, you know, people that are economically and educationally disadvantaged. Actually, you know, there are some people that profit from that. And I need for you guys to understand that, that there are people who profit from, you know, people being impoverished. There are some people that profit from people being, you know, uneducated. You know, we've talked about that on the show, about how if your child does not read at grade level by really the fifth grade, that is how they determine the number of prison beds and the number of private prisons that, you know, that they open. So, again, you know, we just want to educate you. We want you to understand, you know, what's happening and why and, you know, who profits from all of this So and why they advocate for certain things. So we just don't want you to be caught unaware 
of what's really happening in our communities and why. And so, wow. So, you know, the whole thing is just, um, you know, interesting, you know, how it all came about. And, you know, just get out there and learn. Get out there and learn and understand, you know, what's happening there. And so from there I'm going to talk about Angela Davis. You know, Angela Davis is known for being a radical. She's known for being associated with the Black Panthers. And, you know, she's an activist, she's an educator, philosopher, and, you know, uh, it's, it's just, you know, I had the pleasure of seeing her last year when she spoke at the University of Chicago. And it definitely was, you know, an enlightening experience. And I know I posted about it. I made a meetup about it. You know, I just made sure that everybody knew because when people like this come to town, I just think it's important that we get out there and we support them, but also to kind of understand who they are, where they're coming from, and not to listen to, you know, a lot of the propaganda that is being, you know, passed around in the media. You know, I've had people ask me, do I believe everything that is, you know, uh, that the media tells me, no. There's a lot of propaganda, you know, in the media. There are a lot of stories that are held back, you know, by request, and, you know, the media, you know, basically assuages, you know, the, the whims of the political parties. And we understand how that works in the wealthy. So, um, no, I don't believe everything that's in the media. That's why I read, you know, magazines and periodicals that, you know, are from other countries to kind of give us a better idea. Because sometimes, you know, with the media, they'll tell us certain parts, but they won't tell the full story. They'll tell just enough to make it believable. But anyway, you know, with Angela Davis, you know, she was, you know, a black activist, and she was arrested as a suspected conspirator in the the attempt to free George Jackson from a courtroom in Marin County, California. And that happened August 7, 1970. And the guns that were used were registered in her name. And so she was acquitted of all charges, but, you know, she was on the FBI's most wanted list um, because she fled from arrest. And, you know, she was only on there for a short period of time, but, you know, you know, needless to say, she was on there. But, you know, again, she's been associated heavily with the Black Panthers and the Black Power politics of the late 60s, early 70s. And... You know, I wish I was around during that time. You know, I was a baby. And, you know, um, you know, it's just interesting how a lot of the leaders in our community, you know, accusations are hurled against them. Even if you go back and you look into the history of some of the early free thinkers, of some of the early, you know, atheists, you know, especially during the human renaissance. So you got Hubert Henry Harrison, um, you know, a. Philip Randolph that came after, you know, the um, Harlem Renaissance, but, um, you know, John G. Jackson, you know, a number of different people. You know, you go back and they get the label of communist and socialist. And, you know, in this country, you know, even now you hear those labels being tossed around. And, 
you know, Angela Davis, she actually did join the Communist Party when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And she was an active member with SNCC, and SNCC stands for Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And she was part of that before the Black Panthers. And she ran for Vice President of the United States on the Communist Party ticket in 1980. So, you know, she's been around for a long time. She's been an activist. She's been, you know, a feminist um, or a womanist, if you will. And, you know, you know, writing and promoting women's rights and racial justice. And, you know, she was a professor at the University of Santa Cruz and, you know, at San Francisco University. And it's just, it's just you know, her past, you know, absolutely astounding. And... It's interesting. Um, Ronald Reagan, you know, I guess he has some type of vendetta against her, but he swore that she would never teach again at the University of California system. And, you know, and she received tenure at, you know, UC Santa Cruz. You know, and this was after he had made that, you know, threat. And so this is to kind of let you know how a lot of these people were blacklisted, you know, blackballed um, then and now. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, how all of this came about, but, you know, she studied with Herbert Marcuse. So, you know, she's published all kinds of books on race, class, and gender. And, you know, a lot of that information is available on the Internet. And I've published, well, not published, I've posted quite a bit of that, you know, throughout the years. And, you know, again, go back and check it out and see, you know, and, it's just, you know, interesting, you know, um, the history of all of this. And, you know, these are some wonderful women. I had someone in the chat room, you know, thanking us for sharing this because they had never heard about some of these wonderful women in their work. And, you know, they even put a link in about the off-presidential election years. And, you know, it's important for you guys to understand all of this is inextricably tied. And that's what I'm trying to get you to understand. And I want you guys to know that. You know, it's, it's, it's very important for you to um, be aware as to how these things work and how, you know, it works against us. And, you know, I'm one of these people. I am not for any one particular party. Um, personally, I am an independent. And, you know, I believe they're all in collusion, but that's me. You know, um, I used to be a staunch Republican, for those that aren't aware of that. Um, staunch, 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 staunch Republican. And even now, um, it's just interesting how all of this, you know, has come about and how we've done a full revolution on, you know, just some of our viewpoints. And, you know, I, you know, I find it interesting. You have all of these people talking about, Facebook and Twitter and social media revolutionaries or armchair revolutionaries. And these are some of the same people that aren't out there doing anything. Just because you gave a speech or two, that does not mean you're out there doing anything because you're preaching to the choir. You're talking to people that are in your community, and you're talking to the same people that have no interest in doing anything for your community. And, you know, that's what I find interesting because if you look at some of these same individuals, they hold some of the same beliefs. 
because, you know, as they say, not everyone who shares the same skin color as you share the same values. And you have that in the atheist community as well. You know, you have some blacks out here and some, you know, people of color that have absolutely no interest in social justice and will tell you as much. So, you know, again, you know, if that's not what you have an interest in, that's fine. But, you know, I believe that you're doing yourself and your community a disservice when you're out here, you know, talking about diversity and talking about reaching out to communities of color and, you know, telling them why religion is evil and religion is bad. And, you know, I agree there are some aspects of religion that are just, you know, absolutely horrible. But there are other parts of it that are good. And what I mean by that is they are getting out in the community. They are reaching out, some of them, not all of them. You know, when you start talking about some of these other churches, it's it's just, it's about the money. But the same thing is happening in the atheist community. It's about the money with some of these folks. But, you know, if the churches were, if every church were to shut down right now, some of these people will have no place to go to, you know, get food to help them stretch to the end of the month because the amount of money that they're getting from, you know, SNAP, the amount of money that they're getting from WIC, the, you know, even the ones that are working full time. There are people who, two, you know, two-person households, both working full time, and they can still barely afford their one- or two-bedroom apartment and barely feed themselves and their children. And so they go to these food pantries, you know, sometimes they're in the church, sometimes they're independent, but they go to these food pantries to get enough food to make it to the end of the month. There are people that need assistance with their lights and gas and rent, and some of these churches are helping with that. And when I say they're helping, they're not getting the money directly from the church. It's a federal program, the CETA LIHEAP program. It's a federal program, but they put the offices in these churches because they know the people will go to the church and they're more accessible. But what is the atheist community doing? But anyway, that's a different story. That's not what I'm here to talk about. But, you know, I'm just talking about some of the good things that do come from the institution of religion. And I'm not saying that from the atheist community. Now, there are atheist charities out there. A lot of people don't realize Doctors Without Borders is an atheist um, charity. Um, The ACLU is an atheist charity. You have Flash and a number of things. Um, In Austin, Texas, they have a program that's out there helping the homeless and, you know, we're, you know, looking to work with them. They they opened up another branch in Houston. Donald Wright brought that up and brought that to our attention. So, you know, we plan on doing some work with them as well. And so this is what we mean when we're talking about moving social justice, getting out in the community and showing people that, you know, these programs are available without necessarily, you know, the church, if you will. But we have to get out there. We have to make ourselves known. We have to reach out. We have to reach out. And, you know, there are many people in this community, you know, that are in leadership and these some of these larger organizations that just simply do not care. You know, they care about 
different, you know, phrases being on money. They care about the separation of church and state, which is something that we all need to care about because the last thing we want is for this country, it's to turn into a theocracy. That would be a nightmare. But, you know, basically there's more to life than that. There are people in this country that are starving. You know, there are children that are dropping out of school because they don't have clothing to wear. You know, there are children, they go to school, but they go to school because that's the only place they have to go, you know, or to go to eat. You know, the only food that they get, you know, the breakfast and lunch at school. When they go home, there's nothing there to eat. You know, there, um, there are community centers here that when they open up, or the people arrive to work 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, there are teenagers sleeping in the doorways because they've been kicked out of their home and they have nowhere to go. And so as soon as the center opens in the morning, they go in there. Those are the only places they have to go. We have to do better. But anyway, moving on, <laughs> you know, talking about, you know, you know, black women in the social justice movement, one of our very own, you know, Dr. Hutchison, Sativu Hutchison, and, you know, we call her our Angela Davis of the atheist community, and she's an absolutely wonderful person. You know, and she's a feminist, she's an atheist, she's an activist, she's an author, she's an educator. And she wrote, you know, a few books, but the two that um, the atheist community are most familiar with are Godless Americana and World Combat. And she's working on another book um, talking about, you know, the Jonestown Massacre. And she's written a couple of articles out there. I've posted it, and I'll post them again um, later on this week. But um, her book, Moral Combat, is the very first book on atheism to be published by an African-American woman. You know, um, you know it's, it's just wonderful. In 2013, she was named Secular Woman of the Year. And, you know, she's just a wonderful person. If you all get a chance to reach out to her, she definitely will reach back to you. But, you know, she's written for American Atheist Magazine. She's rich, um, written for the Richard Dawkins um, Foundation, um, L.A. Progressive, the New Humanist Blog. She's a senior fellow with the Institute of Humanist Studies. Um, She's part of the Speakers Bureau for SSA as well as AAH. Um, she, she's just a wonderful person. Um, she does a lot of work in the Los Angeles area. She has the WLP, which is Women's Leadership Program, and, you know, they just started up a counter program. Um, and I forget the name of it, but it's for young men, and I apologize for that. And, you know, she, you know, started the Black Skeptics Group. You know, and she has, you know, just a wonderful background. And the Black Skeptics Group is very active in the Los Angeles area. And, you know, again, there's a chapter here in Chicago, Black Skeptics Chicago. Um, we have other affiliates. We have an affiliate in D.C. We have an affiliate in Milwaukee. You know, Houston Black Nonbelievers um, is, you know, definitely, you know, part of the Black Skeptics family here. And... You know, again, there are a lot of things that are coming out of the Black Skeptics Group, which she founded. And, you know, this year, you know, we're going to be, you know, uh, putting out a few projects that are going to be, you know, wonderful and it's going to help the communities. Um, you can find, you know, 
Dr. Hutchison's information at sakivuhutchison.com as well as blackfemlens.com. And you can find Black Skeptics on the Free Thought blogs. You can find that information out there. But in her book, Moral Combat, you know, she examines, you know, um, the hijacking of the civil rights a movement by the Christian right, or just civil rights in general by the Christian right. And, you know, she talks about imperialism. She talks about fascism. She talks about social justice and feminism and the connections between, you know, the K-12 education and humanism. And she's definitely, you know, a proponent for public education. So, you know, she's talked about, you know, some of the, you know, insidious um you know, backgrounds behind um, the Tea Party style, you know, <laughs> fundamentalism, um, charter schools, you know, and it's just interesting, you know. Just go back, and she talks quite a bit about public policy. And if you go and you buy her books, read Moral Combat first, and then read Godless Americana, and it will make perfect sense. She wrote them in tandem. And, you know, she frames a lot of her narratives, you know, um, basically talking about contemporary realities of the working and middle class, you know, the working poor, if you will, and, you know, African-American communities and, you know, the black church and the cultural trappings of it. So, you know, again, you know, she she's just wonderful. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of interviewing her twice on this show. So if you go back into the archives, you definitely will be able to go back and hear those interviews. And, you know, she's definitely um, a proponent, again, for social justice and community activism. And here's one of her quotes. You know, she says, as a black female atheist, you know, she states that while black male nonbelievers are given more leeway to be heretics or just missing in action from church, black women who openly profess non-theist views are deemed especially traitorous, having abandoned their primary role as purveyors of cultural and religious tradition. So, you know, she talks about, you know, women in the church and women in the black community and how this is all tied in together. So, again, if you have not had the opportunity to read about, you know, um, Dr. Hutchinson, you know, we definitely challenge you to go out there and do some research on her. And, you know, I look forward to, um, you know, bringing her back. And for those of you that will be at the conference in October, you'll get a chance to hear her speak, you know, as well, because she's one of the featured speakers and panelists. And so come on out. I promise you, you will have a definitely good time, you know, out there with us. And so, you know, moving on, since we're talking about feminists, um, Gloria Steinem, a couple of weeks ago, she's a white feminist, for those that aren't familiar with her, she spoke about um, black feminists and how black feminists have been on the forefront of this fight from the very beginning, even though we're not given our, you know, just due, we're not given the recognition that we deserve, but we've been on the forefront, you know, from the very beginning. And one person that has not been given her, you know, um, recognition or the attention that she deserved was a woman by the name of Florence Kennedy 
also known as Flo Kennedy. And, you know, she was a civil rights advocate and, you know, a feminist and an attorney at that. But, again, you know, she was a lawyer and a political activist. And, you know, uh, people considered her dress as flamboyant. And sometimes, sometimes some people would make outrageous comments, and some of the comments she made were considered outrageous as well. And it drew attention to, you know, what she was struggling to um, the points that she was trying to get across during the civil rights movement and, you know, in feminism. And, you know, she died, you know, a few years ago in 2000. And, you know, at the end of her time during the feminist community, um, basically there was an issue that came up. And, you know, again, a lot of black feminists, let me put this in perspective, a lot of black feminists, basically were given an ultimatum by the black power movement. They were told that they could not be a part of or encouraged not to be a part of the feminist community or feminist movement because they needed to focus all of their time and attention and resources on the black power movement. And so this is where some of the divide came in, and it's starting to play itself out even now because I've seen, you know, a lot of black men telling women, black women in particular, that they need to focus on being a part of moving the black community forward and, you know, focusing on the, you know, mistreatment of black men and that, you know, our time will come. And we've been told that for years, that our time will come, and let's just focus on this for now. But I personally believe that, you know, we can be a part of the atheist community, be a part of the humanist community, be a part of the feminist community, be a part of the black community in advocating for civil rights, in advocating for equal rights, for leveling the playing field. We can be a part of all of that. And, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of black men that do not agree with us when we say that they have some male privilege, and they do. Now, they don't have the same privilege as white males, but they do have some male privilege. And I did a show on black male privilege um, a while ago, and, of course, you know, there are some people or a couple of men that took issue with that particular show. But, I mean, it happens, and that's why we're doing these shows, to educate people and so that you can get a better understanding as to what it actually is. Because what I've found is a lot of people, you know, take issue with it, and they don't fully understand, you know, what we're talking about, which is why we take time out to put this in context and to talk about it in depth, you know, or in depth enough, you know, because we don't have enough time to talk about all of this stuff um, in great detail, but, you know, primarily because I want you to go out and do some research for yourself. But, you know, getting back over here to Flo Kennedy, you know, again, you know, um, <laughs> she was known for wearing cowboy hats and pink sunglasses, and she graduated from Columbia Law School. She was one of the first black women to graduate from Columbia Law School. And she was admitted after she threatened to file a discrimination suit. Um, she fought for reproduction rights. She represented the Black Panthers. She was a founding member of the National Women's Political Caucus. And 
They led a mass urination by women protesting a lack of women's restrooms at Harvard. Now, that was a new one. I didn't know anything about that, and I still have to do some research on that because I just found that um, interesting. But um, it's just interesting. You know, former Mayor Dinkins, you know, um, spoke about her, and he said, if you found a cause for the downtrodden or of somebody being abused someplace, by God, Flo Kennedy would be there. So she definitely was for the underdog, if you will. She was for people that were being, you know, um, mistreated, you know, and marginalized. And People Magazine called her the biggest, loudest, and indisputably the rudest mouth on the battleground where feminist activists and radical politics join in mostly common form. And that was in 1974, if you want to look that up. And, you know, Judge Emily Jane Goodman of the New York State Supreme Court said Ms. Kennedy gave women courage, that she showed a whole generation of us the right way to live our lives. And so it's just as important for you guys to go out there and, you know, know about these different people. She was friends with Gloria Steinem. And, you know, um, Ms. Steinem, you know, loved, you know, um, Florence's razor-sharp wit. And, <laughs> um, you know, men would always ask her and ask, you know, a lot of the black feminists and Gloria Steinem and all of those people, are you lesbians? You know, I just find it interesting how the feminist community um, has been, you know, tethered with, you know, the women being lesbians. And it's just interesting because that's a conclusion that a lot of people have come up with. Those are, you know, some of the, you know, uh, you know, epithets that have been, well, it's not even epithets because there's nothing wrong with being a lesbian. So, but, you know, when people use it in that respect, they're using it as an epithet. You know, saying that, you know, the feminist movement will turn your daughters into lesbians. And so that's what I mean when I say that. But, um, again, it's just interesting, you know, how all of this, you know, came back. <laughs> and Ms. Kennedy would always ask the people who demanded or the men that would stand up and ask if they were lesbians, she would always ask them, are you my alternative? So, it's just interesting, you know, how all of this came about. But there are a lot of wonderful women that were part of, you know, the feminist community. And they have not been given their just due. And, again, you know, Gloria Steinem even acknowledged that, um, you know, the other day, just like with um, the LGBTQ movement, you know, the gay movement. You know, a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with Stonewall and what actually happened at Stonewall. And what actually happened, it was, you know, trans women of color, black and Latino in particular, that got tired and fought the police back. And a lot of that history has been, you know, whitewashed, if you will, because when you see the gay movement now, you know, the LGBTQ movement, you primarily see whites. And there are a lot of blacks that are part of the community, but a lot of that was started by blacks and Latinos. And that's why we encourage you guys to go back and read the real history about it. And there are some other issues going on with the gay community. There's a lot of racism in the gay community. Um, you know, that's not talked about a lot either. 
And that was one of the reasons why you had some members of the black gay community that did not um, protest with the white gays for marriage equality. Because, you know, in a lot of cases, like with the feminist movement, how it turned into a white movement, and the reason why, you know, the gay community, the gay movement and the feminist movement, the reasons that they gave that they wanted to put the white faces up there was because it would be more palatable to mainstream America. And so... It's just interesting how all of this came about, but a lot of black gays did not protest with a lot of the white gays for marriage equality because they felt and feel as though the white gay community has thrown blacks under the bus, just like a lot of black feminists feel as though the white feminists have thrown black feminists under the bus because once they have achieved what they wanted, then they know, you know, there's no use for us anymore. But yet we're still dealing with oppression. We're still dealing with racism. And, you know, not only, you know, within these particular communities, but without, you know, outside of those communities as well. And so, you know, this is where a lot of the divide comes in. And I know I'm getting a little bit off topic, but, you know, it all goes hand in hand for people to understand where a lot of this came from and, you know, how it's all tied together. It's all a part of the history. So, again, you know, um, Florence um, Kennedy, go back and read her autobiography, and it's called Color Me Flow, My Hard Life in Good Times, and it was published in 1976. And, you know, she said, you know, her parents never criticized, almost never criticized their daughters. And so, you know, it's, it's just wonderful. Um, you go back and read some of her history, you know, wonderful woman, and you need to go back. You know, she represented, you know, a lot of people in the community. She represented the states of Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker to recover money owed to them by record companies. And on Wednesday, MC Brooks will be doing a show, and, you know, he'll be talking about, you know, um, a lot of different issues and the racial issues behind it. And, you know, we have a lot of wonderful people um, on Black Freethinkers Network. We have Teeny and Brooks, and their show is coming up Wednesday. We have On Blast with Vita Starr. She did a show on black feminism um, last Friday, and I want you to go back and check that out. You have Mario and M. You have Carl and Alfred, and, of course, you have the Sunday show, the Black Freethinkers show. And so, you know, go back and listen to those archives. We've covered a lot of this. And I will say that Friday's show um, on black feminism, that Vita and Emmeline and um, Teeny was there and Bruce was there, and, you know, it was a phenomenal show. Brooks was there as well. And go back and listen to the archives because they covered a lot of material. But, you know, again, you know, part of why I'm talking about these things today is to talk about, you know, grassroots organizing, you know, community activism, social justice, and to show you guys that a lot can be accomplished. All it takes is one person. And if they see one person standing up and making accomplishments, other people will join in. And the ones that don't, you know, it's just not for them. You know, they're not passionate maybe about that particular cause, or maybe they, you know, want to do things a different way. But, you know, at the end of the day, as long as it gets done, that's what matters to me. 
And, you know, again, go out there and read about a lot of these wonderful women and the history behind, you know, these, you know, beautiful people and understand, you know, how all of this came about. And so now I want to talk a little bit about Daisy Lee. Daisy Lee Gatson Bates, you know, I had to, because, uh, you know, this is a wonderful woman. You know, she passed away in 1999, but she was a member of the Little Rock Nine, right? And for those who aren't familiar with that, you know, it was a group of African-American students who integrated Central High School in Little Rock in 1957, Little Rock, Arkansas. And they gained national and international recognition. And they kept going back, kept going back. This was during the times of desegregation. And they desegregated that high school. And, you know, the National Guard had to, you know, the the governor, you know, ordered, you know, the National Guard to prevent them from entering the school. And so go back, read your history. Go back and understand, you know, what we went through, the struggle. You know, and, you know, it's not over. As Melissa Harris Perry and her dad would say, the struggle continues. And so, you know, um, Miss Bates or Mrs. Bates and her husband, they published the Arkansas State Press, which was a newspaper primarily dealing with civil rights and other issues in the black community. And, again, the name of that paper was Arkansas State Press. And, you know, I just say go back. And read, you know, she was a foster child. And, you know, she was taken in by Susie Smith and Orly Smith. And, you know, they raised her. And, you know, again, she attended segregated schools. And it's just, you know, it's important for you guys to understand, you know, what a lot of these, you know, people went through. You know, they faced you know, fire hoses, they faced police dogs, they were getting beaten, you know, people were killed, you know, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, go back, do your research. But again, you know, she, you know, did a lot to move the community. And it's not a lot known about, you know, um, her formal education, but, you know, it's information out there that tells you about her and her husband, and, you know, the paper that they started, and, you know, um, she was very active in the operations of the paper. But it's just, wow, the history, you know, they were supporters of the NAACP, of course. Um, They were active in the Little Rock branch. And she was actually elected president of the Arkansas ah, Conference of Branches, which is an umbrella organization for the state NAACP. And, you know, she was very well known in the community. And she was, you know, one of the most known, well-known civil rights advocates Um, in 1956, you know, during the pretrial proceedings of the federal court case, Aaron versus Cooper, which set the stage for the 1957 desegregation of Central Central High School. So go back, go back, go back, go back, um, and read about this and understand, you know, where all of this came from. And she worked hard, you know, you know, to desegregate these schools. She worked hard to go into the communities and, you know, to make life better 
for other children. And it's just, you know, it's important. It's important. We don't want these people to be forgotten. You know, we want to honor their legacies and honor their memories and, most importantly, you know, honor their contributions because we stand on that. You know, we are supposed to be moving forward, you know, from, you know, what they have established. And so it's just as important. Go out and read this information. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about Sojourner Truth now. And she was born in 1797. And, you know, Sojourner Ain't I a Woman Truth. And, uh, (laughs) you know, um, she was taken and separated from her family at the age of nine. You know, she was a slave, and she was sold several times. And, you know, she was, you know, isolated from, you know, other African Americans, and she suffered from physical and sexual abuse, of course, you know, like a lot of, you know, slaves, you know, particularly female slaves, but there were male slaves that were sexually abused as well. And not a lot is talked about. That's not talked about quite often. And, you know, maybe we'll do a show um, about that and talk about how some of the male slaves were abused also. But um, it's, it's just interesting. You know, she walked to her freedom in 1826, and she said she was inspired by her conversations with God. And, you know, um <laughs> You know, it was it was just interesting how all of this came about. She said she had a, vis- a vision of Jesus. Now, I know we're, you know, humanists and atheists and non-believers, but I just think it's important to tell her story. And she felt that she was baptized by the Holy Spirit, and that's how, you know, she had the strength and the confidence to resist her former master. And so... You know, you know, we did a show talking about the God concept. I did a three-part show, and I talked about, you know, how black Christianity is different from white Christianity and how a lot of black Christians, especially during the time of slavery and Jim Crow, and even now to a certain extent, how they call upon the supernatural, you know, call upon their faith, call upon their belief, for power and strength and hope to survive injustice and oppression. So, you know, I just wanted to make sure that I put that in context so that you'll understand, you know, where they were coming from. And sometimes, you know, I've had people say that I sound like a Christian apologist at times. It's not that I'm a Christian apologist. It's just that I just feel as though we need to understand these things in context. And I do not believe that it is our job to go out there and persecute religious people. I just don't, and I won't be a part of it. And you have some people out here that call themselves firebrand atheists or militant atheists, and that's fine. And with some people, you know, that works with them, but other people, it's a repellent. And then we have to go in and do damage control because there are some, you know, believers or spiritual people that would not have a conversation with me because of past experience with other humanists and atheists and secularists. And after we talked, you know, we were able to establish some type of rapport, some type of, you know, respect there. And so anyway, going back to this, so, you know, Sojourner Truth, 
you know, she moved to New York City in 1828, and she became a preacher, and basically she felt as though her faith in preaching brought her into contact with different abolitionists and women's rights crusaders, and, you know, she became very, very sought after and powerful speaker on both subjects. And she traveled, you know, as a lecturer and, you know, um, especially after they published the narrative of Sojourner Truth. And it detailed, you know, her suffering as a slave. I have not read that. And so I had to put that on my books, my list of books to read. And they said the majority of her speeches were not political. I've read a few of them. And, you know, basically people appreciated her unique interpretation, her unique perspective as a woman and a former slave. And so it's just, you know, she did a lot of work. She did a lot of work to advance the cause of, you know, womanism. You know, I believe that's when it really started. And, you know, um, and to give people a better understanding of the atrocities of slavery, what the slaves dealt with. Um, And, you know, when the Civil War started, you know, she increased her, you know, political work. And so, you know, she helped, um, you know, um, with the inclusion of blacks in the Union Army. And that's how they were permitted to join. You know, there were a number of people that were advocating for the inclusions of blacks in the Union Army. And she used to bring them food and clothing. And, you know, she worked heavily in women's suffrage, you know. And, um, you know, she left the women's suffrage movement when Elizabeth Cady Stanton stated that she would not support the black vote if women were not also granted the, the right. So, you know, again, you know, if you go back and you look at the history, you'll see where some of the conflicts came in. You'll see where some of the resentments came in and why it's still passed down because, you know, some of the same issues are still happening to this day. You know, we've talked extensively about, you know, white privilege. We talked about appropriation. And, you know, we'll talk, you know, more about it. But if you get a chance go back and read her Ain't I a Woman speech. And that was delivered in 1851 at the Ohio Women's Rights Convention. And just go back, you know, and, you know, going back, um, Nell Painter put it, that was at a time when most Americans thought of slaves as male and women as white. Truth embodied the fact that still bears repeating, among blacks are women and among the women there are blacks. So, you know, I just think it's important that you guys go back and you read that. And I need to pick that book up because I just think it's important that, you know, I go back and I read that as well. So, you know, we're coming towards the end, but I want to definitely, you know, tell you a little bit about Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm. But Barbara Jordan, she was the first in a lot of different things in Texas. And, you know, it was, you know, she had wonderful, wonderful history. She was the leader, one of the leaders of the civil rights movement. Um, she was the first African-American elected to the Texas Senate after Reconstruction. She was the first Southern black female elected to the United States House of Reps. She was the first African-American woman to deliver the keynote address at the, you know, the DNC, the Democratic National Convention. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. You know, um, 
she became the very first African-American woman to be buried in the Texas State Cemetery. And she did quite a bit. Um, she was Houston born and bred. And, you know, it's just interesting, but I just want you guys to go back and, you know, read. You know, she taught at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Um, it's just interesting. You know, she practiced private law. She had a private practice. And, you know, she campaigned for, you know, the Texas House of Reps in 62 and 64. She didn't win, but she was persistent, and she went back, and she won in 1966. So, you know, again, we just tell people, you know, be relentless, you know, be perseverant, be persistent. You know, you can achieve quite a bit. And, you know, and goes, that goes back to, you know, what I was talking about earlier with, you know, Elaine Brown. She won 44% and started getting major endorsements. And so we just want to encourage you guys to go back and to continue. And, you know, you're never too old to pick your dreams up. You're never too old to pursue your dreams. And, you know, you've heard me talk about dream killers. You have plenty of them around, and don't listen to them. Go back. You can do it. Trust me, you can do it. I've seen it happen. But... Anyway, just to move on a little bit, you know, Miss um, Jordan suffered from MS. She had multiple sclerosis, and, you know, she ended up in a wheelchair. And basically, um, it just it became interesting um, how all of that came about. Bill Clinton wanted to nominate her for the U.S. Supreme Court, but, you know, by that time her health had become so bad that, you know, he was not able to, you know, nominate her. And a lot of people didn't know that, that he was going to put her on the Supreme Court. But, you know, um, she had a, a life partner. And her life partner, her name was Nancy Earl, and they were together for close to 30 years. So, you know, go back, go back, go back, and do your research and, you know, understand, you know, these people in their lives and the sacrifices she made. Um, you know, Miss um, Jordan, she was not out publicly, um, but, you know, in her will, you know, she, you know, made it very clear that her partner was to, you know, receive, you know, her estate. So, you know, again, go back, read understand the history, understand what's been going on, and I'm just going to move on to Shirley Chisholm here. And, again, you know, she was a politician, educator, and author. She was a congresswoman. She represented New York's 12th conditional district for seven terms from 1969 to 1983. And she was the first African-American woman elected to Congress, and that was in 1968. And in 1972, she became the first black or the first majority party black candidate for president of the United States. And this was Miss Unbought, Unbossed. So, you know, you can go back and you look at all of her information. That was the name of her autobiography as well, Unbought and Unbossed. She was phenomenal. All of these women, absolutely phenomenal. And Shirley Chisholm, she wrote, years later, I would know what an important gift my parents had given me by seeing to it that I had my early education in the strict 
traditional British-style schools of Barbados. If I speak and write easily now, that early education is the main reason. And so, you know, you go back and do your research on these people. You know, we have a very diverse background. You know, these women and many, many more. You know, I don't want to slight other women in the community. You know, I just didn't have time to include everybody, but, you know, is you know our history is very varied, it's very colorful, it's very rich, and I think it's important because a lot of young people do not understand our history. And you know, with Miss Chisholm here, um, you know, she created a controversy when she visited, you know, George Wallace in the hospital after he was shot in 1972. You know, and that was that happened during the, you know, presidential primary campaign. And, of course, as I stated earlier, she was also running for president at that time. So, you know, but I thought that was a great gesture that she actually went and visited him in the hospital. Of course, she didn't win the election for president, but she went out there and she tried and she ran. And she showed women and she showed people of color that they can that they can. And so, you know, we've talked about reproductive rights. And in 1990, um, Shirley Chisholm, along with 15 other African-American women and men, they formed the African-American Women for Reproductive Freedom. And so we'll be talking about reproductive rights more this year. I know I have a couple of series that I need to bring in that I talked about the latter part of last year, and, you know, I'm going to get those situated. And we have a lot of series coming up. But we definitely want to talk about reproductive rights. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because the Republican Party, you know, they have made their way back over to women's wombs, if you will. So, you know, earlier I talked about, you know, abortion rights and the abortion clinics, namely in Texas and Mississippi, these red states in particular, and how, you know, they have more restrictions put on them, it's forcing them to close and, you know, going from, you know, a couple of hundred down to like six. So, again, you know, we will be talking about, you know, a lot of these things um, in upcoming shows. But, you know, if you all get a chance, there was a documentary made about Shirley Chisholm, and it was made in 2005, and it's called Shirley Chisholm 72, Unbought and Unbossed. It's, it's wonderful. I had a chance to watch that, you know, many, um, a few years ago, if you will. And I would encourage you guys to go out there and, you know, watch these documentaries about these people. You can find a lot of these documentaries on PBS. You can find some of them free online. You just have to search. You'll find a lot of things over on YouTube as well. And purchase them. You know, purchase, you know, these documentaries. Um, purchase these books. Go back and support these people. Support, you know, what they stand for. Support, you know, the parts of it that you do support. You know, I'm not saying to support people blindly. You definitely want to go out and do your research, and that's what we encourage you guys to do. But, you know, these are just a few of the women that have influenced me over the years, and it was wonderful doing the research for this show because, you know, I learned – you know, some extra things about some of these people, and, you know, it was beautiful. 
And so, yeah, you know, before someone said in a chat room in sports, before Serena Williams, there was Althea Gibson. Exactly. You know, you have a number of different, you know, athletes out there. You know, a lot of people, you know, don't know about people like Althea Gibson. You know, they don't know about, you know, um, Jesse Owens and, you know, a lot of different people that have come before them. You know, they don't know about, you know, what happened um, <laughs> when they made the black power fist at the Olympics, you know, in defiance to Hitler and, you know, what was happening there because, you know, what was going on during World War II. And so, you know, we just ask that you go back and you read the history and you understand, you know, what's happening and what's going on. But that pretty much wraps up what I wanted to talk about today. And, you know, we encourage you guys to come and join us next Sunday. We'll, we'll bring bring another show. Um, Brooke's show is this Wednesday coming. Check him out. Again, go out to People of Color Beyond Faith. Check out our YouTube channel. Again, we have Twitter accounts um, for Black Freethinkers, People of Color Beyond Faith, um, you know, Black Skeptics Group, Black Skeptics Chicago, all of that is out there. And we encourage you guys to come to our conference in October. October 11th and 12th, this conference will be held in Los Angeles, California. So it's an actual physical conference, and you'll get a chance to meet us. And, you know, we're looking forward to meeting you guys. We're very excited about it. So more information is forthcoming. And I also wanted to bring up the Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers. And there were celebrations all over the country. There were a couple of celebrations in D.C. There were celebrations in Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, um, Houston, Austin, Texas, um, Atlanta, you know, Milwaukee, and... You know, we congratulate those that actually went out there and put together a celebration. We have this every year. It's always the last Sunday in February, and it's in connection or in conjunction with Black History Month, which is why we chose that. And so Donald Wright, the author of The Only Prayer I'll Ever Pray is Let My People Go, he is the founder of you know, Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers. So if you all get a chance, reach out, say, you know, congratulate him, just say hi, and let him know that you're thinking about him and to thank him for his contributions. And like I said earlier, I received a beautiful, you know, letter this week, and I just wanted to thank, you know, the young man that sent me the letter. I appreciate it. And thank you so much. And, you know, so much more to come. Like I said, this week it will be some announcements for people of color beyond faith with some national campaigns we're about to launch. And in April, another major announcement. I can't really go into details right now, but all I'll say is that we're extremely excited about it. And so will you once you find out what's happening here. So on that note, I want to say thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. And, oh, happy birthday, Raina Rhodes. Today is Raina Rhodes' birthday, and she is out, and I believe they're at Tony Penn's presentation. Tony Penn is in D.C., and he's talking about 
his book, the autobiography, writing the autobiography of God. So he was on the show on January 12th. That's in the archives as well. And just to kind of give you a heads up, it was an excellent interview. And he was talking about how Jesus of the Bible, the way that he's presented is without a penis, no sexuality whatsoever. And so if you get a chance to purchase, you know, um, his autobiography, Dr. Penn's autobiography, I promise you it's a good read. So get out there and, again, support the people in this community. You know, we need the support. And there are more things coming up, especially for those of you that want to get out and do social justice and community activism and grassroots activism. We're, you know, you know, we've been talking about it, and there's been some activity in the community, but you're about to see an explosion. You're about to see more, and so we're encouraging you. So, you know, reach out to Dr. Hutchison. Reach out to Donald Wright. Reach out to, you know, Dr. Penn. Reach out to different people in the community. You can reach out to me. My email address is blackfreethinkers at gmail.com. Again, blackfreethinkers at gmail.com. Check out our archives for this show. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Stitcher. You can find it on Podbean, as well as Blog Talk Radio. And you can find archives of people of color beyond faith on YouTube. So all of that is out there. We appreciate you. We want you all to contact us. We're actually looking for some more panelists for shows. And again, it's about diversity. So we're looking for indigenous, you know, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, you know, D, all of the above, you know, theist and non-theist. And so with that, you know, I thank you guys for your support. I thank you for everything that you've done. I thank you for the motivation. When I get those emails and those letters, It gives me motivation. So, you know, continue sending them in, you know, not the hate mail. I'm going to start reading those publicly so you all can see what we get. Um, And, you know, I may start publishing them. If you're bold enough to send it in, you know, you're bold enough to have it published. Anyway, you guys take care and have a lovely day, and thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you. And I appreciate everything that you've done for us in the community. Take care. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.